Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see so many people here on a holiday weekend. Um, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but uh, for those who, those who are here who don't know me, I'm Aaron. I'm one of our community group leaders. I'm really excited to be with you this morning to uh, be uh, opening the Word of God together and looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Um, and so as we, as we get into this, let's just take a second and, um, and just pray real quick that, that the Lord would be with us, that he would and that he would guide us to know, uh, to hear and know what he has for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to be together, that, um, that you've given us a reason to be together, which is, which is Jesus. That because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, because he has made us new people by faith in him. We get to celebrate that today, together. And God, I pray that our time together, looking at, uh, looking at what you've said to us through your word, looking at what, how it shapes who we are and how we do the work that you've called us to as a church and as individuals, that it will be a fruitful time, that it will be a worshipful time, and that it will be uh, helpful for us and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, for the last few weeks, we have uh, been making our way through the book of Colossians, and specifically working our way through chapter 1. And I've got some exciting news. We've made it to the very end of the first chapter. So, uh, today, as we conclude chapter 1, let's begin by reminding ourselves where we've been over these last few weeks, as Paul's introduced himself to a group of Christians that he may actually not have ever met, but are, but are an extension of his ministry in a church that was planted by someone who heard the gospel from him in, in Ephesus. Um, and yet, despite having possibly never having met these group, this group of believers, he deeply loved them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And these brothers and sisters whose faith was genuine and was bearing fruit, fruit that he prayed would be multiplied to even greater degrees, filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding as they reflected on the supremacy of Christ in creation, the preeminence of Christ in the church, and the power of Christ in redemption. And as they grew in their appreciation of all that Jesus did to save them, to save Paul, and likewise to save all of us if we know Christ and that actually sets the stage for what Paul is going to say in the conclusion of this chapter. Because what he's going to describe here is um, what's actually a model of Christian ministry. Now, that word ministry can be a little bit tricky for people simply because sometimes we think of, uh, because of the context that we live in, we tend to professionalize it. We think about it as basically what Dustin does vocationally. Um, but ministry is something that we are all called to if we are in Christ, if we are believers, of, if we believe the gospel, then we are all called to ministry. 
And so Paul gives us a model to inform how we do ministry. And he does it by calling our attention to four aspects. The, uh, he gives us a new perspective on Christian ministry. He gives us the purpose of Christian ministry, the practice of Christian ministry, and the power of Christian ministry. And so we're going to look at that first one first, the perspective of Christian ministry, and we're going to see that in verse 24 of the text. Now, I'm reading from the NET translation, so the language may be a little bit different. Um, as a reminder for folks who may not have heard me say this, the reason that I, that I tend to preach from different translations than, say, Dustin or David is simply because um, we really want to, we, basically, I want you to be in the Word. I don't really care what translation you, you use, um, but I want you to be able to see, to see different facets of the text from different ones and to be able to find one that works for you. So, all my caveats are, are well in place. Now let's, uh, let's, let's read this together. So, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. All right, so we're stopping there because this is a really, really difficult verse to understand. It's actually one of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. And it's because of this one word, this word lacking, that's what throws us for a loop so often. Because if we read over it too fast... If we gloss over this, it can sound like Paul is saying that there was something insufficient in Jesus' ministry, in his life, death, and resurrection. But as we know from the rest of Scripture, Jesus' suffering on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of all of humanity. And there's nothing that needs to be added to that and nothing that can be added to that. And in his life, in his perfect obedience to all the commands of God. There was nothing that was found insufficient in that. He lived perfectly and completely fulfilling every aspect in the way they were intended. And so there's nothing that could be lacking in the word, in the, in the work of the very Son of God. So that's not what Paul is saying here. But what is he saying? Well, there seems, to be, there seems to be at least a couple of things that he is, is trying to get across here. Um, and the first is that Christian ministry is eternally significant. And so this aspect finds its basis actually in Jesus' own words that his disciples would do greater works than him, which we see in John 14, 12. And so when Jesus said this, he wasn't saying it because he was implying that his disciples would be somehow better than him um, because, again, Jesus is perfect. We are not, so it's not actually possible. But it was because their ministry would extend further than his in his incarnation. The book of Acts goes on to actually demonstrate that as the disciples' numbers grew exponentially as they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went forth in, in power. And so as Christians pursue our mission of making disciples, and not just making disciples, but making disciples who are making disciples, we do so 
as part of this as part of a great unbroken chain that takes us back all the way to the incarnation of Jesus. One that, and one that continues on beyond us and finds its conclusion only in the new creation, in the new heaven and new earth that will be ushered in by Jesus when he returns. And so there is an eternal significance to what we do because it is part of furthering this gospel message until the day that Christ returns. Second, those who minister, this is the second piece that he's talking about here, and this is um, a little more of an immediate, in-the-moment aspect of it, which is that those who minister in Christ's name will also suffer like him. So Paul's ministry is a testimony to this. When he was converted, Jesus himself said that Paul would suffer mightily for his sake. And suffer, Paul did. I mean, as you read the book of Acts, you see Paul was, was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was accosted, he was persecuted, he was stoned, he was left for dead many times over. He even had what he described as a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, a perpetual affliction of some sort that he pleaded with the Lord to have removed. But when he, when he prayed this, when he asked, he even asked this three times, and the Lord said, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so we'll actually come back to that last little bit uh, toward the end of the message, but just make a mental note of that for now. But all of this is why Paul said that he could boast in his weakness and why he and the other New Testament writers all encouraged us to rejoice when we experience trials and difficulties. And it's not because they're all a bunch of masochistic weirdos like my friends back in Canada who root for the perpetually hopeless Toronto Maple Leafs. But it's because they knew that suffering would come. They expected it. Just like how Leafs fans ultimately know that they're not going to have a shot at the Stanley Cup. It's just not going to happen. They haven't won it since 62. Um, it's been a long time. They're kind of bitter about it, but it's okay. But they expected suffering would come because Jesus said it would happen. And Jesus even told them himself in Luke 6.40 that a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone when fully trained will be like his teacher. And so if Jesus suffered, why would his disciples not? Jesus suffered profoundly, in fact, in his earthly ministry, and he did so in humility to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. And so Paul experienced that. The rest of the apostles experienced that as well. Believers throughout history have experienced this. Believers today are experiencing it right now. And so, Christian, in this life, we're going to experience trial, pain, difficulty, suffering. It's just going to happen. And the good news is that with every experience of suffering, we are, we are actually being 
drawn closer to Jesus. And we're being made more like him as a result. And so when we, when we like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, experience trouble on every side, we don't have to be crushed by it. When we're perplexed, we don't have to be driven to despair. When we are persecuted, we, we don't need to feel as though we are abandoned by God. When we're knocked down, we, we know that we're not going to be destroyed. We are always, as Paul said, carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. As we suffer, as we experience setbacks, as we experience difficulties in ministry, in all of life, we are being drawn closer to Jesus and we're being made more like him as a result. And so admittedly, I've barely scratched the surface of all that we can learn from this one verse. But I think for us right now in this moment, as we consider not just starting the starting of thinking about our ministry from this perspective, there's one thing that we should do. We should, we should hopefully be encouraged by this. Because this perspective on ministry that sees every ministry, whether visible or invisible, public or private, apparently important or seemingly insignificant, all of it matters. And everything we experience, no matter how profound or painful or seemingly mundane, all of it serves a purpose. All of it serves to draw us closer to Jesus. And so how do we respond and how we respond to what we experience testifies to the truth of the gospel. And so before we move on to the next part of our passage, I want you to think about how the Lord has called you to serve, both within the church and within the larger community. Do you see how where you serve and how you serve matters? So thinking about refuge for a second here, whether you're part of the setup team, whether you're supplying something um, incredibly delicious for the hospitality table, I don't know who did that, but thank you, Um, teaching uh, and helping in kids' ministry, singing, playing guitar or keyboards or drums or any other instrument um, or being prevented from doing so because you don't want to hear me do any of those things um, or any way that you serve, even simply the act of greeting someone you don't recognize. What you do matters. You are helping this place be a welcome one for people who need to hear the gospel for people who may well be feeling weary and heavy laden, burdened by the weight of whatever the week has brought. Your ministry, no matter what it looks like, matters. And the same is true for what you do in the larger community. So if you're here and you're a Christian, you have a ministry to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your employers and employees, if you have those, to the parents at your kid's school or at, their, at the homeschool co-op. And that ministry might look a lot different than it does in a church setting. It may have to be something that's much more subtle, perhaps even incredibly covert. And it might start with just being friendly to your neighbors. It might be as simple as telling a teacher at a school, 
hey, I know you've got a challenging job. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the way you invest in kids. I'm praying for you. It might also include purchasing a few needed items for the classroom. And yet, all of this is still ministry. And all of it matters. So do you see that? Do you believe that? And how might God be calling you to help people in your orbit believe the gospel? Now, as, as encouraging as that might be, there's a lot of what we've talked about that can feel overwhelming, particularly as we think about what, what we talked about with this idea of suffering and its presence in our lives and in our ministry. Maybe that can even create a sense of uncertainty when you start looking at your own life, especially when it comes to understanding your own struggles. Because while it's true that it is true that suffering does have a purpose, it really does draw us closer to Jesus, and it really does make us more like him as we endure it. But sometimes just saying that can feel like a platitude, especially when we're trapped under the weight of our own sorrow. And maybe that's you today. And if it is you, we want to do what we can to help. So in a little while, when we take communion, come, you can come, grab me if you, if you want to talk, grab one of our elders, all of them are in the room today. Uh, if you're in a community group, someone from your community group, or maybe just the person who's sitting next to you, let's go find, take some time, talk, pray together. And in your community groups this week, take the time to do the same, because whatever it is that you're carrying, you don't have to carry it alone. That is a way that we serve one another too. We carry one another's burdens. And so that is, the, that is Paul's perspective on ministry, that it is eternally significant and that those who minister in the name of Christ will experience the same things that he did. But what does he say is the purpose of Christian ministry? Well, that gets us into verse 25. And here he says, I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. So that, uh, that is, the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So, okay. These two verses, again, we're, we're taking these in really small chunks because there's a lot here that can leave us scratching our heads. Um, and they, these two have another element like that, at just as verse 24 did. So Paul, in his appointment to his calling by Christ, describes being given his role in order to complete the Word of God. And this completion Again, like that sense of what was lacking, it isn't, isn't a sense of filling any holes um, as if there was anything missing. Instead, this completion means to make the word fully known, to go forth and proclaim the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. And this mystery language is important because, remember, uh, the Colossians were facing 
false teaching that was built around this promise of secret knowledge that was made available through a form of mysticism that mixed elements of Judaism and local pagan religions. But Paul countered this teaching, teaching that there was, uh, that there's nothing secret about this mystery, that it's a mystery that God always intended to reveal at the appropriate time, and that mystery was known to all the saints, which is another one of those ways that Paul refers to Christians. And so he continued, God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this verse is not only the mystery revealed, it's also the purpose of Christian ministry, to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christian ministry, therefore, is relentlessly single-minded. The only thing we are really about is making the gospel of Jesus known. That is what we do if we are Christians. That has a lot of different aspects to it, and it's very incredibly multifaceted, but at its heart, Everything we do, whether we are serving, whether we are helping those in need in our community, whether we are, um, whether we are doing basically anything you can think of, that is what we do. We are about seeing people who were lost, who were dead in their trespasses and sin, made alive through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And while there's a great deal of practical wisdom that Christians can share on a number of different topics, we don't offer principles for a better life. That's not what our ministry is about. And we don't offer steps to self-actualization or self-affirmation. Because, as, because the most important thing, the, really the only thing that we have to offer Everybody in this world is something that's so much better. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is what makes Christianity so special, so unique, so good that it can only be true. The gospel's promise, the hope of glory, isn't just that we'll live with Christ forever in the future, although we will, and that is incredibly good news, because it reminds us that Everything we experience right now in this moment, that it is temporary, it doesn't last forever. Instead, we will eventually see it all come to an end and it will be replaced with something so much better. But the good news of the gospel is also that Christ dwells within us right now. And so in everything we face, the good news is, is that we are never alone. Christ doesn't leave us to just figure it all out for ourselves, saying, well, I saved you, good luck with all that. That doesn't happen. Christ is with us in everything because Christ is in us. And this isn't just about us individually. It's also about us collectively. As a church right now, if we believe the gospel we are united because Christ is in us. We are united together 
in this place, in this time, at this moment. And we are also united together with all believers across all space and time, across all nationalities and ethnicities, one in Christ because Christ is in us. And so this truth, ultimately, what this should do is it should cause us to to marvel. I mean, this is the gospel at its heart. This is what we were meant to do. And so from a really practical perspective, as we think about how do we apply what we've just talked about, it starts with this question, do you believe it? Do you believe that this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, do you believe that that is for you? Because it is. It is for you. And so, if you're not sure about that, again, at, during, com- during communion time, come and, come and talk to someone. We'd love to talk with you and find out what's going on there, what barriers may exist. But we want you to know this truth. And if this is your, your faith, if you do believe this, if you do believe that the, tr- the truth that Christ is in you, how can, how, is that, how can that change how you look at the week ahead? Or even just the afternoon ahead? Maybe the week is too, too big to think about. So what does, what does 12 o'clock look like if Christ is in you? There's a lot to think about there. But that is our purpose in ministry. Our purpose is to make known Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we've seen Paul's perspective, we've seen the purpose, and now we get to the third aspect, which is actually the practice of ministry. And so this is what verse 28 says. It says, we proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. And so picking up from verse 27, Paul talks about the how, whom, and why of ministry in practice. That is how we make the gospel known, to whom we make the gospel known, and what we seek to accomplish by making the gospel known. And so for that how, Paul gives us three words. He gives us proclaiming, instructing, and teaching. Proclaiming is, is a funny word because generally speaking, that, that is often what we think about as the act of preaching, like what's happening right now. And that's certainly a part of it, but proclamation is not limited to preaching. Whenever and wherever Jesus is spoken of, whenever the gospel is shared, in whatever context, he is being proclaimed. And we all need to hear Christ proclaimed every day of the week, through every means God gives us. And we also need to share and proclaim Christ in every opportunity that he gives us. And so when we read the Bible throughout the week, we are having Christ proclaimed to us. When we read faithful books and we listen to helpful podcasts, Christ is being proclaimed to us. 
And so as we think about proclamation from a, a receiving standpoint, we should be thinking about how, what are we doing to build healthy rhythms of Bible reading into our lives? What books are we reading that are filling, are fueling our knowledge and understanding of the gospel? And when it comes to the other side, to our responsibility to proclaim Christ in every situation, do you know what those opportunities are? Who is God placed in your life who needs to hear about Jesus today? So that's proclamation. The second is instructing, which some translations will say admonishing or perhaps even warning. Um, instruction in this sense, regardless of what word is used in your, in your translation, it has a corrective aspect. It's helping one turn away from what is wrong to help us see the error in our thinking and our behavior and to return to what we know to be true. So this is a challenging aspect because, let's be honest, no one likes to be that person. No one likes to be the person who says, hey, what, this is wrong. No one likes to have to go about correcting someone. It's not fun. <laughs> you don't win friends and influence people uh, doing, that, doing that, but it's necessary. And as we can see from Paul's ministry in the New Testament, he, um, he made this a core part of what he did, not because he wanted to be up in people's business all the time, but because he cared about those to whom he wrote. He wanted them to persevere. He wanted them to grow in maturity, and he wanted to do all that he could to help them in that. And so, again, just as we don't like to correct people, or maybe some of us do, um, none of us like being corrected either, but we all need it. And correction really happens best in the context of relationship with people that we can trust to speak truth in love to us and with whom we can do likewise. So take a second and think about who those people are in your life. Who can you count on, not just to encourage you, but to correct and to challenge you? And on a related note, this is one of the reasons why community groups are such a huge deal here at Refuge. They're meant to be a safe place for all of us to build those kind of relationships, to encourage and correct one another, to challenge and sharpen one another as we help one another grow in our shared faith. So, if you're not in a, in a community group, but would like to be one, come talk to me after, after the service. I'd love to get you some information to help you get plugged in somewhere. So we have proclaiming, we have instructing, and we have the last one, which is teaching. Because where instructing or admonishment in this passage carries that idea of correction, teaching here has more of a sense of imparting wisdom or knowledge or insight. And so that might sound intimidating just because of the word teaching. I mean, after all, we're told, we're told that not many, in James, that not many of us should presume to be teachers because we judge more strictly. And so it's okay to feel a little bit intimidated by that. But we have to remember that teaching in this respect isn't limited to formal activities. So whether that's teaching in kids' ministry, leading a Bible study, uh, preaching like I'm doing right now, there is, there's, those are formal activities, but there's also the informal sort of teaching that happens as well. So when you're asked 
advice by a family member or a friend uh, or a coworker. Those can be teaching moments. Um, conversations, which with me, much to my daughter's chagrin, often turn into teaching conversations, although I try my best not to lecture, um, although, spoiler alert, it doesn't always work. Sorry. <laughs> She's shaking her head no right now. Um, and, there are all, and there are ways that we also teach without using words at all. Because what, because the, and that's this idea of what people catch from us by watching how we live and how we behave. And so as you consider this aspect of ministry, consider what are the ways that you're already teaching people, even without realizing it? And where are the opportunities for you to do this to a greater degree? And so, full disclosure, here at Refuge, there is one really, really important ministry in our church that needs more of that. And it's happening in the hallways right behind me. It's our kids' ministry. This is a powerful way to invest in the youngest people in our church and to partner with parents in gospel ministry. So, I've been a Christian for 17 and a half years or so. I've been in kids' ministry um, with a few breaks here and there for about 14 or 15 of those 17 years. And so I won't tell you that it's an easy place to serve, because it's not. I also can't promise you that you're going to see the fruit of your work right away, because you won't. But for our kids to see faithful men and women who love Jesus investing in them, it's amazing to see, how, to see that come about. And so if you are curious about this, I mean, sign up for our newsletter um, on a weekend that you see Jessica Halcom, our kids ministry director, um, around. Connect with her. Connect with one of our other leaders. We'd love for you to join us in serving the kids of Refuge Church well in that way. And that leads us to, uh, from the how of ministry in practice, our proclamation, our instruction, our teaching, to the whom. Who is the focus practically of ministry? And so listen again to this verse. We proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. And so notice the text saying all people, or depending on your translation, it might read all men or everyone. What's fascinating in the Greek text is, is that the word translated all men or all people or everyone actually appears three times in this verse, saying something closer to this. We proclaim him by instructing all people and teaching all people so that with all wisdom we may, we may present every person mature in Christ. And so many translations, including the one that I'm using today, actually remove that first instance of all people, see, treating it as a redundancy. Uh, but Kent Hughes, uh, a pastor and uh, author of an excellent commentary that has been so helpful for me this week, week preparing for this message, notes that, this pa uh, that in this passage, Paul's not padding his word count. That threefold all people emphasizes something significant about who Paul believed the gospel was, was for, which is to say that the gospel was and is for 
everyone. There is no one from whom the gospel should be withheld. There is no one who is so lost in their sin that they should be written off as though the gospel couldn't save them. There's no one who is so mature in their faith that they no longer need to be pointed back to this good news on a regular basis, to be refreshed by the hope that we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the promise of redemption from our sins. And so as we think about that, there's a really simple question that we need to ask ourselves. Do we believe it? Do we believe that there's no such thing as a person who is so lost they couldn't be saved? You know, thinking about that reminds me of, of how grateful I am for, for my friend Adam, who, um, this is really Canadian content heavy today, but, uh, but back, when we, back when we lived in Canada, uh, Adam, we went, Emily and I went to college with him, and he became a Christian after we, after we all graduated and 18 years ago, around this time of year, he messaged me on MSN Messenger, and everyone over 40 knows what that is, and if you're under, I'm sorry. Um, and he asked if I wanted to go to an event at his church called Alpha, which was a program where people could learn about what Christians believe in a ju judgment-free environment. Um, lots of... Lots of um, high-carbohydrate meals, lots of dark lighting in a basement. It's, it, it's very conducive to napping, uh, depending on the context. But um, this was a question, um, and this was a question that he couldn't have known was going to lead to me being here this morning. And in fact, when he was trying to figure out who to ask to this thing, and my name came to his mind, he was pretty, as he prayed, he was pretty sure that God was wrong because, uh, because I wanted nothing to do with God or religion or anything like that. But Adam obeyed. I'm here because he did. So if we really believe the gospel messages for everyone, let's consider, who's that person in our lives? Maybe it's a person like I was all those years ago who didn't care anything about religion. Maybe it's a family member who's wandered far from Christ. Maybe it's someone who says that they believe the gospel, but they haven't, they haven't sat in, they haven't joined a group of believers in decades. They're not even doing, they're not even doing Easter and Christmas. They're just not doing anything. Maybe it's our kids who we're trying to raise faithfully. Maybe it's a coworker or a classmate. Whoever it is, who is that person in your life? And what step can you take this week? So we have the, we have the how, we have the why, or we have the who, and now we have this question of why. Why do we do this at all? And we, we proclaim Christ, we teach, we instruct, we correct everyone indiscriminately. And we do this with one specific goal in mind, that we present every person mature in Christ. That's the end goal that we see coming up again and again in virtually all of Paul's letters. It's the heart of our mission as a church to make disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. 
We want everyone who comes to faith to grow and to keep growing until the work is completed. And here's the good news. We can have confidence that that work will be completed because God himself says that the work that he begins will be completed. Again, referring back to Philippians. And so when we think about, when we think about this, practically speaking, who do we, how can we help someone else grow in their, in their faith this week? How can we help someone take a step in maturity today, tomorrow, next week, and the days beyond? There are opportunities waiting for us. Ask God to help you see them. And so, as we come to the close of our passage, we have one more aspect of ministry to consider. We've looked at the perspective, we've looked at the purpose, we've looked at the practice of Christian ministry. And let's be honest, it, it feels like a lot because it's a lot. But seeking to, because seeking to present everyone, all people mature in Christ is a daunting endeavor. But Paul doesn't leave us in a lurch, nor does God. He doesn't, Paul doesn't leave this passage saying, well, here's what you're supposed to do. Good luck with that. And neither does God. Instead, we get one final encouragement as he reminds us of the source of power in Christian ministry. He says, toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works in me. So, real simply, there's no part of ministry that can be sustainably done in our own power. Christians cannot white-knuckle their way through the work of ministry. It is an impossible task for us, requiring more than we can muster through any natural means. And so while the work of ministry should be exhausting in one sense, we're supposed to, if, if we're supposed to be single-minded about making Christ known, then we, then we should be giving our best efforts to those things. But the power that propels our ministry is not human effort and ingenuity. It can't be those things. Ministry only happens by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, does that mean that we work? Of course we do. We work, and we work hard. But as we do, we know we are not working alone. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit is working in us and through us so that Christ will be proclaimed and every believer will be presented mature in Christ. And that's the only way that we can do ministry. It's the only way that Paul could do ministry. It's why he could say that he would boast in his weakness. It's why God reminded him that his power was sufficient. And so as we close, let's consider this. Where have we been relying too much on our own strength? Trying to do the work calls us to in our, through our own effort. How can we encourage one another, uh, um, uh, one another to greater faithfulness in this area, pursuing the purpose of our ministry in the power that God promises? 
Friends, if you are in Christ, you are called to a great ministry to proclaim the glorious riches of Christ in you, the hope of glory, to present everyone mature in Christ, to play a part in making disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. May we do so never trusting in our own strength, but always relying on the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you have designed ministry, the clarity that exists with ministry, that our goal is to make Christ known and to present all who believe mature in Christ, that we all have a part to play in that, and that you don't leave us to do this on your own, that you give us the power that is needed to complete the work that is before us. God, please help us, empower us, strengthen us for what you have called us to in the days ahead so that more people can know this great mystery that you have, that you have revealed. The glorious riches of Christ in you, the hope.